You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to be in Philippians uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 18 at, through 26 here in uh, in just a few minutes. Um, but to you know, to, to get us, uh, to kind of get us headed there, uh, I want you to think about uh, fear. So think for a minute about that word fear. I realize I'm looking at a crowd here where, um, you know, your tendency to fear um, is probably going to be different than others, right? There are some of you here that may say, I, I don't really fear anything. Uh, there are others of you that would say that, and I actually think I've lived in a lot of fear lately. And so that's a wide spectrum. Um, now here's the thing. I would say that maybe you don't struggle with fear in terms of fearing something that someone else feels or fears, but maybe you fear something different. What do you do with that fear is the question, I think. And what do you fear? Can you be honest enough to face your fears? Uh, the reality is that um, fear is a very powerful emotion, right? You think about that. It's a very powerful emotion. It can suck the joy out of life. It can suck the beauty out of life. Uh, and I think the reality is that there are a ton of things that uh, can cause us to live in fear, right? You think about it. For some of us, it's the fear of death that consumes our hearts. Um, for others of us, it's the loss of freedom that scares us. I know we have people in the audience today who fear the loss of freedom at some level or another. This season has taught us that in some ways, has reawakened that fear. Some of us are afraid of being embarrassed. Others are afraid of uh, being ashamed or being rejected. Uh, others uh, fear the thought of being alone. Anybody afraid to be alone for the rest of your life? Um, that's a fear that I, I, I battle. We fear for our health, right? Uh, we fear losing our friends. We fear losing our family. To some kind of and, we, and we fear the loss of income, too. Once again, this season has kind of taught us that a little bit. The reality is that when you begin to follow Jesus, you hear this. You hear that we have not been given the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but that we have been given the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, right? You've probably, most of you may have heard that. If not, you're hearing it now, and it's a, it's a, it's a good exhortation, good, good promise. Likewise, we also learn as we follow Jesus that God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control we know these things we hear these things we learn these things why do we still fear why do we still have to struggle and fight against those fears why do we fear the economy crashing why do we fear death why do we fear loss why do we specifically here in america fear 
the loss of our freedoms. Why? See, at the end of the day, um, we are creatures of habit. When our habitual rhythms of our lives get threatened, we feel afraid. It's a normal human reaction, really. It's, it's natural for us. Sadly, I think most of us, maybe I should just speak for myself, um, I think a lot of us uh, can actually be afraid to face our fears. We, we, from, uh, from before we are born, in our mother's wombs, we are taught how to deal with our fears, how to cope with them emotionally. Before we're even able to put language to the emotion, we learn from the, from the bodily chemicals from our moms how to do that. It's an, it's an interesting study, um, just in how God has wired the body and how moms actually help to do that with their kids before they're even born. I could go on that forever. Well, long story short, I think a lot of us can be afraid to face our fears. We struggle to find the confidence that we need in our younger um, adult lives and as we move into adulthood. Learning to cope with those fears in a way that is actually full of authentic uh, confidence. It's hard to move out of the shadow of our fears and into the light of what lasting confidence really is. And oftentimes, if you think about this, the, the popular self-help books, they really just teach us to dig way down deep inside of ourselves, find the confidence that we need to then face our fears, right? That's kind of the popular mantra out there today. On the other hand, uh, sometimes we are taught that we should just change our circumstances. We change our circumstances that will alleviate the fear that we feel. And these are just two um, ways of approaching fear. The problem with these kinds of approaches to dealing with these fears, our fears, is that they typically rely heavily on our human ability to pull up our bootstraps and do something about the circumstances of our lives. Now, don't hear me wrong. Hear me rightly. Humans are capable of pulling off um, some really amazing things. We cannot undermine the fact that humans are very complex and oftentimes very talented. So we can do some amazing things. But uh, at the end of the day, I will never be able to manage my fears by mustering up my human bravado. I will never manage my fears by changing my momentary circumstances. As soon as I muster up all the human bravado inside of me to face some kind of fear, what's going to happen? Something much bigger and much more scary is going to come after me. That's the human experience, I think. As soon as I change my circumstances to alleviate my fear, what happens? I find myself facing a new circumstance that I cannot change, that I cannot control. So all I'm doing is blowing holes in some of the very humanistic ways that we 
have a tendency to approach fear. Hopefully it helps us to think a little bit about the way we deal with fear. Oh, the reality is fear, it's something that um, originates from deep within me in response to or reaction to, I mean, you heard that word reaction a lot lately, in reaction to something outside of me. So let me say this again. A fear is something that originates from deep within me in response to or in reaction to something that is happening outside of me. If I'm going to face my fears, I'm going to do that with any kind of lasting confidence that I need something lasting to place my trust and my hope in. And this is where the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, is is really great. It's a great case study for what it looks like to lay hold of a lasting confidence that will not dissipate in the midst of fearful circumstances. Now, it's a book, really, as you read it, the book of Philippians. It's a book that exudes the fruit of joy. It overflows out of the heart of the author, the Apostle Paul. He's very confident, a very confident man. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. It says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with Full courage, now as always, Christ will be on in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I want to pause and pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege that we have today, the privilege that we have today to be together. But your grace and your mercy have been good to us. Help us not to take that for granted. But I pray that you would speak to us your word. I pray, God, that you would come and and wound us even as you do a a work of formation in our hearts and our lives. Lord, this entire season we know has not happened out from underneath your watch. 
So we trust you, Father. We ask that you would come and, and, and do a work of healing. Do a work of transformation. Do a work of change. Do a work of confrontation. Bring us to repentance. Challenge our hearts. Wake us up from our slumber. Open our eyes from our spiritual blindness. Open our ears from our spiritual deafness. Lord, we trust that when your word is preached, that that is the work that you desire to do. We ask you, Father, to save souls today. We ask, God, that you would make yourself famous in our midst, that you would help us to rest and to trust in nothing short of Christ crucified, risen, and returning again. Trust you to do that, and we love you. Amen. So these verses, as you read them, they have a deeply personal ring to them. Okay, the depth of the longing, the depth of the exuberance of joy that overflows from Paul's heart in these verses. is It's absolutely obvious. See, if the heart is the heart of the issue, if our reactions prove what's happening deep down inside of our hearts, then it's easy to see that Paul's heart is not controlled by fear. He's not living in fear because of his circumstances, the chains that he's living in for preaching the gospel. He's not living in fear because of the problems that he sees in the Philippian church that he's about to address. Paul's not afraid to address the problems in the church. He's going to speak very bluntly about the self-centeredness, about the arrogance, about the pride, about the complaining, about the arguing, about the disagreements, about the division that the Philippian church is known for in their community. He's going to speak straight about this. We oftentimes read these books and say, that doesn't apply to me. Apostle Paul is confident, not afraid. He's confident that as the Philippians put on the mind of Christ, and as they focus on their salvation, they stand firm in the joy of Christ. He's confident that as they do those things, that Christ who is all and is in all will reign supreme. That's Paul's confidence all throughout the book of Philippians. In short, the Apostle Paul is going to live his life. He's going to live every breath of his life in complete, true, authentic freedom. Not some funny human concept of freedom. True, authentic freedom. Spiritual freedom. Freedom from fear. He's going to live in a kind of freedom that is not infected with the so-called freedom that we love here in our country. And oftentimes is really just entitlement masquerading as freedom. It's got a bunch of lipstick on to make it look good. If that stains you a little bit, just ask the Holy Spirit if that was meant for you. 
If it angers you a little bit, ask if that's true. That's a true statement. The Apostle Paul is going to live in true freedom because his confidence is in the crucified, resurrected, and returning Christ. What does this mean for us? Right? What does it mean for us to find confidence? What can we be confident of that's going to help us remain steady and immovable as we face our fears? What sure and steadfast anchors can we hook our hearts to so that our souls will remain full of joy? First thing I see in the text, verses 18 to 20, is that we can be confident in a final vindication. Okay? Confident in a final vindication. Here's the reality. We, we oftentimes want to find our vindication somewhere here in this world. We want to be proven that we're okay, that we're right, that we're good, that we're needed. Just, it's part of our natural human tendency. Strive for that. Paul says in these verses 18 through 20, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Summarize what he said Paul is confident in a final vindication. So therefore, we can be confident in a final vindication. You see, Paul is not afraid of those who preach Christ out of rivalry. He's not afraid of those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. He's not afraid of those who preach Christ insincerely. Not afraid of them. He's confident that if Christ is named, then Christ will be known. His joy, Paul's joy, it's attached to his confidence in the name of Christ. He knows that the the prayers of the saints, enabled by the Spirit of Christ, that that's what's actually going to give him strength in this moment so that he may endure until he is finally delivered from this body of death. The moment you're born, you're dying. Paul's expectation is not that his captors are going to finally admit that he's right. right? This will sting. Paul's not concerned that his governing officials will proclaim his essential or non-essential status. He doesn't care about that. Why? Because he doesn't need them to vindicate him publicly, that's why. Paul knows who he is. Paul knows whose he is. Therefore, he does not need that kind of a reputation. He does not need to fight for that. Paul's expectations, Paul's hope, they are resting in the Lord for his final vindication. He knows that Christ has delivered him eternally. 
trusts that. He knows that. <laughs> he knows that his momentary circumstances, the chains, the restrictions, the limitations, the problems, all of it, those things that he's experiencing, they're not going to dictate his true eternal destiny or his identity. But our church doors being open don't define or dictate who we are. I don't care if this building is standing tomorrow or not. I've said that from the get-go. I don't care if we have a building. Church doors don't mean anything. What means something is each of you and how you live your life. Prayer didn't stop in our country the day that church doors got closed. They stopped the day that Christians stopped praying. I'm preaching heavy why. Because we're living in a time, I believe, I believe it's pivotal. And it's so easy for us Christians to get our eyes on the wrong thing and miss Christ altogether. If Christ would be the center, Christ would be the center. It's burning inside of me. Been burning inside of me. Paul knows, regardless of the problems, the limitations, none of that's going to dictate his eternal identity or destiny. He's not going to be ashamed. He's not going to get let down. He's confident in that because he knows. He actually expects. He finds courage in the truth that Christ will deliver him. Christ will be made famous through him. Whether he lives another day or whether he dies today. That's his message. Leads me to the next reason that we have to be confident. To be confident in life or in death. Be confident in both. See, now life has a funny way of throwing hard, fearful circumstances at us. One of the most fearful circumstances, I think, is death. I think it's one of the scariest things for most of us. A few weeks ago, heard the news. A pastor who died, either by suicide or an accident. Not quite sure yet, it looks like suicide. This man's journey impacted a lot of people. Read his books, listened to his podcasts, spent time in the same room with him. Part of one of our networks that we're part of. You begin asking questions at that point, the closer and closer that hits to home. Why? How? What can be done to change this? Spent time this last week. Uh, dialoguing with an anonymous person via email whose specific words were, I wish that I could excavate my head with a large caliber weapon. That's, a, that's an exact quote. Of someone who sees no reason to be here on the face of this earth anymore. And yet, on the other side, when it comes to this idea of death, sat in rooms with people who have moments and hours left who are ready to go see Jesus, 
full of joy. Sat in the same room with many who do not know the Lord and are bitter. And they're trying to hold on to every ounce of what they think life is. Life has a funny way of throwing hard, fearful circumstances at us, right? One of the most fearful circumstances for a lot of us is death. Death does come for everyone. That's the reality. Death is no respecter of persons. You don't know when death is going to knock on your door. And here's the thing. When it does come knocking on your door, you really can't escape it. You're not going to pull up your bootstraps and get better and beat that or change your circumstances. If death comes knocking on your door, you're dead unless the Almighty God says, no, it's not your time. I face death. I should have been dead that day on a motorcycle. Here's the thing. Sometimes I forget that, and then I, and then I give in to fear, and I start going, well, what will they think? What will they say? How are they going to treat me later? Am I going to lose my friendship if I say X, Y, Z? How pitiful am I deep down inside that I would allow fear to control me not to preach the truth of God's word into the circumstances of our lives. Right? I faced down death on a motorcycle got hit by a truck and God said not yet. So here's the thing. Whatever loss we're going to face in this life, it's only under the hand of a sovereign God who says yes or no. And that's the God I trust. The one who put his son on a cross to pay for pitiful old me, rebellious old me. So, death can be scary. You know, life can be scary too. For some people, the thought of death seems like a sweet release from all of the sin, all the pain, all the suffering of this life. How are we to live? How are we to live with resolute confidence in the face of fearing either one? Whether you fear life or you fear death or you're just like, I don't fear either, I don't really care. Fine. We'll move on in a minute. How? Paul's writing this letter from jail. Knows that death is going to come on his Pretty soon, could happen any moment, yet he doesn't live in fear of death. Paul has also experienced the suffering of his life. He knows that life can be excruciatingly painful and scary. 2 Corinthians 11, good case study of the things that Paul faced in this life, and none of us have experienced that. I would go so far as to say that physically, the Apostle Paul faced more than Jesus did, physically. Spiritually, no. Jesus took on all of the sin, all of the Father's wrath. But Paul, beaten a number of times within an inch of his life. So, Galatians 6.17 tells us that Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Paul faced some suffering. He knows what tough circumstances in this life are. Like, here's the thing, Paul is not living in fear of life's circumstances either. He's not, not afraid of death. He's also not afraid of life's circumstances. I, Paul's actually, do whatever you want to me, that's fine. Say whatever you want to say about me, that's fine. Believe whatever you want to believe about me, that's fine. That's Paul's attitude. 
He lives in complete confidence as he wrestles openly. I love that about Paul in this text. He's wrestling openly with the prospect of either dying today or living another day when he utters these famous words. They're words that most of us have heard. A lot of people like to put them on t-shirts and coffee cups and take them out of context and create the really awesome little Christian bubble subculture that we all like to live in and forget what's going on outside that bubble. That's our problem as Christians. We create a bubble, we live in it, we isolate ourselves from the world outside of us, and we are horrified when anybody else comes close to that bubble. And usually we do it by proof texts and little passages, putting them on our coffee cups and our t-shirts. I got a few of them, so I love them. Don't hear me wrong. Go buy t-shirts and go buy coffee cups with really cool slogans on them. These words, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Understand what what he means when he says, for to me to live is Christ. Here's what it means to live is Christ. It's to lose your freedom. It's to lay yourself down for the sake of others. It's to pick up a cross and carry it. It's to die to your selfish desires right that's to live as christ to live as christ is not to be comfortable to live as christ is to be uncomfortable so to live as christ but to die is gain i mean jesus is the best model we have of what it means to be christ-like The job of the church is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples that look like Jesus, right? So think about what Jesus looked like when he walked this earth. Think about the things that he didn't get involved in that the church gets involved in. Think about it. The life of Christ was a life of self-sacrifice. All the way through and through. Jesus' greatest enemies were not the occupying government that he lived under. His greatest enemies were the religious people that thought they had it all together. That's the message of the scriptures. When you open the Bible at first, like when you're a new believer, you're like, man, these guys are kind of my heroes. Like they're following their checklist marks, right? They got this stuff together. And you find out later, like, no, they're actually the enemy. That has to seep down inside of my heart every day, right? So that I continue to become more like Christ, not more like some Americanized version of a Christian. Paul lives in complete confidence as he says this for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i am to live in the flesh he starts to wrestle this out that means fruitful labor for me yet which shall i choose i cannot tell i am hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account you kind of get this hint of paul saying ha you need more You kind of hear Paul saying what he says elsewhere, you know, where he would say something like, I don't know if you're ready for the meat yet. 
you love the milk. I'd like to give you the meat. And I kind of need to stick around so I can give you that because you need it. It's necessary for you. He's confident the prospect of either life or death because both, life or death, both of them are ideal. Why? Because both of them are full of the benefits of what? Christ. Christ is always at the center. Like, Chris, you always say this, and this is great. It's not Christ first and then something else second. It's Christ at the center where all other things flow out of. Love that picture. I'm sure I'm quoting somebody else that you're quoting. You love to quote people. I love that picture, though. It's true. It's not Christ first. Christ at the center. One author, um, really, whose basic outline in terms of the three big points I'm teaching today, I'm basically teaching his three points. Um, because I couldn't come up with anything better. And that scholar obviously makes a bunch of money to do what he does, so why not steal those, his own wording, right? I quoted him somewhere in here just for plagiarism's sake. <laughs> so this author, he reminded me as I was reading and studying that when Paul says that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, here's what he's not doing. Again, we read these passages way out of context sometimes, so part of help us get in the context, understand the author, know the audience, who's he speaking to, what are the issues being addressed, and how is he meant to aim right at you, right? So what Paul is not saying when he's saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's not sounding the trumpet of the triumphant sentimentality of a troubled life. He is instead sounding the horn of the joyous embrace of the burdens of the cross of Christ. See, the scriptures teach us in Hebrew that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our Savior. Here's the problem. A lot of times we want a Savior, but we don't want a King. We want a Savior who will save us from our mess, but we don't want to bow a knee in obedience to our King. So what do we do? We replace Him with other kings, ones we can elect. I mean, the Israelites did this too. This is why you had prophets. They prophesied to God's people do not whore yourself out to another king over and over. What did they do? They stopped their ears. They said, I'm not listening to you. And what happened? I beg you as a church. I've been begging you for years. I beg you. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart on this. We are in a pivotal time right now. I believe it. There's a massive spiritual warfare going on around us. So we can be confident in life or in death because we have anchored our souls to the reality that being present in this life is to be the fruitful reflection of Christ to others. 
Likewise, to be absent from this life is to be present in the perfection of Christ in heaven. It's neither the pain of this life nor the physical loss that is experienced in death. Neither of those can separate us from the love of the Father in Christ Jesus. According to Romans 8, what other promise do you need to hang on to to face a fear? But I would confess that I am one of the most fearful people here today. I've confessed that over and over again. See, this truth that we're talking about, really, it can be captured under the banner of a doctrine called union with Christ. Of the truth of our eternal union with Christ, it points us away from our present circumstances. This doctrine, it teaches us, it focuses our hearts on an eternal future. The idea of, of, of a union with Christ, it's this a doctrine that honestly uh, Dale Phillips preaches much better than I do because he does it with all the visuals, right? He brings out these stacks of cups and he starts unstacking them and then stacking them back together. It's the idea of I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That, that's an eternal union. It, it's a bond that can never be broken because the Holy Spirit is the one that makes that bond. I, I am eternally united to him in his life his death, His resurrection, and His coming glorification. So, it's a massive doctrine that honestly, I think if, if Christians today would spend 25% of the time that they spend on the internet or in front of the TV, contemplating that one doctrine, contemplating that one doctrine, I believe it would produce fruit it would blow your minds. So this truth of our eternal union with Christ, it points us away from our present circumstances. It focuses our, our, our hearts on eternal future. So uh, we must always interpret our immediate circumstances in light of our future hope. This is not new to you. If you hear me preach three times, you'll hear me say that. Brings me to my... Last reason for confidence. Last reason for confidence is that we can be confident in a future reunion. So in our final verses, Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's the thing. Paul is confidently convinced that the Lord is going to preserve his life on this earth a little bit longer. Pretty confidently convinced of that if you read what he writes. Here's the thing. Paul's not God. Somebody say amen to that. Good, you're with me. Paul's not God. He doesn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is one of those funny verses. Where people are like, so you believe in the absolute truth of God's word, the inerrancy of scripture? Yes, I do. Completely. Well, that's not true. Paul died not long after this. That's taking the doctrine a bit far. Wouldn't you agree? He doesn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
honestly, he's already confessed that his deepest desire, back in 23, his deepest desire is to be in heaven. I want to be in heaven. He longed to be to a place that he'd never completely been to. Although he had visited what is called like the third heaven and couldn't talk about that, couldn't utter the story of that. That's where he wanted to be. But despite Paul's inability to fully know the immediate future, despite his deep desire to be in heaven, Paul has a deeper conviction that gives him great confidence. This deeper conviction is that if he is alive, then his presence will benefit the Philippians. What Paul's doing here is he's modeling what it looks like to lay aside his own desires for the benefit of others. Paul looks forward. He looks forward to a future reunion with his beloved Philippian friends. We all know what that's like, looking forward to a reunion with each other. But can I be honest with you? As excited as I am to be here, my heart's overwhelmed to see you guys. I'm just kind of the sick one in the room who is always like, you know what, I kind of wish it was illegal for us. And hey, you know what, we might just have to disagree on that. Maybe I need to go to China where it's illegal and be a Christian there for a while and learn what real persecution is like. Maybe I just have that kind of crazy missionary wiring about me. That gets me jacked up because when I look at the book of Acts, and you hear me say this all the time, the book of Acts is not about a church just exploding in the midst of great times. It's not. And honestly, the church in America has backtracked, gone backwards. So I want to see Christians grow. I want to see new people come to Jesus. So by all means, bring the judgment on if that's the case. Book of Jeremiah. Let's take a bunny trail. The book of Jeremiah. Go back to the prophets, right? So the book of Jeremiah, the big picture there is what? Jeremiah is yelling at the Israelites for getting it wrong. He gets two visions. One of a plant that's going to be overseen by God. It's a picture of God overseeing his own word, tending to it, caring for it, making happen what's supposed to happen. The other one is this big, gigantic bowl full of hot water basically, boiling contents. It's a symbol of judgment coming from a certain direction. Think from the north, maybe the east. I don't know. One of them directions. Doesn't matter about the direction. What matters is the hot water that's going to come out of it, right? Guess what happens after Jeremiah tells the congregation, you know what's coming. Because of your idolatry, you know what's coming. Judgment. It's going to hurt. God's going to oversee his word. And mercy will come again. The beautiful part of that picture, as one commentator was saying, is this. He's like, you know what judgment does? It cleanses. Hot water cleanses. That's why we, most of us take hot showers, if you can. That's why you clean your dishes in hot water. It cleanses. What do we need to be cleansed, purified from our idolatry, our desire to control, our desire for power, our desire for comfort? I think comfort is probably one of the biggest idols right now that is awake and alive in American Christianity. This whole thing made us uncomfortable and we're pissed. So we're going to tell everybody about it. Because that's what Christ would do. I'm snarky. I get it. I see the looks on some of your faces. I'm not afraid. Why am I not afraid? I trust in Christ. Your opinion may differ with me. It's fine. It's okay. 
Apostle Paul does not know exactly what's going to happen in the next few moments. But he does look forward to a future reunion. And that's a doctrine we can hang our hats on, right? Future reunion is coming. This has been beautiful. We'll be together. I'll be honest with you. I know other churches and pastors who tried this. Two weeks later, they had to quit meeting because their entire congregation broke out in this COVID thing. Think it's fake, think it's not, doesn't matter. So we don't know what lies ahead of us. That's my point. I don't hang my hope, my hat on being able to meet like this. I hang my hope and my hat on a place called heaven. And I will not move from that ever because heaven is better than this backyard. Now the scriptures do say don't give up meetings, so we'll find ways to meet. Heaven forbid if it's Zoom again. I feel like we're watching the episodes of uh, Brady Bunch when you're on that show. Conclusion, guys, got to ask, why does this matter? I gave you lots of reasons why I think this matters. I'm pretty passionate about this today. I have this sense that if I die tomorrow, I want to lay it all out on the table and say everything that I think the Lord's given me to say. And I really don't give a rip what kind of flesh is in there. Because here's the thing. God will take that flesh part, whatever was sinful in anything that I said, and he'll deal with that. He'll cause you to hear what you need to hear. So you reject what you need to, receive what you need to, trust the Spirit to do that work in you. But it's still good to ask it as we wrap up, just so that we're in that room. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we find confidence in a final vindication? Well, I would just simply say, so you don't try to find your vindication in things here. Uh, why does it matter that we can find confidence in either life or death? So that you can walk in freedom and fear neither. Why does it matter that we can find confidence in a future reunion? What I just said a little bit ago. Heaven's better than a backyard or a church building. That's going to be the greatest reunion ever. So uh, Ravi Zacharias, last week, right? Uh, last year, who was the other one that died? Thank you, R.C. Sproul. I wasn't saying thank you, R.C. Sproul, like thank you, God, but thank you. Yes, R.C. Sproul was the one. Charles Spurgeon. I'm just, I'm thinking, when I go to heaven, like, I love you guys. <laughs> I love the reunion that we're having right now. I think a reunion with Jesus top of the line next right down underneath that rc sproul bobby zachariah charles spurgeon at the same table with a brew and some incense yeah that sounds like a great reunion to me heaven sounds like a great reunion at the end of the day, we can admit together that we all struggle with some fears at various levels. <clears throat> we can hold on tight to the truth. If Christ is at the center of our lives, then we can remain confident that we, whether we live on till tomorrow or die in the next moment, <clears throat> if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, then we have the hope of a future reunion in heaven. 
So the world is not all there is to life. We need to be constantly reminded of that. If you don't need to be reminded of that, that's fine. I do. I need to be reminded that this world is not all there is to life. I need to be reminded that the coronavirus is really small when compared to eternity. And if they kick us off YouTube and Facebook because I said that, I don't really care. I'm not going to post a big fat war about it. I don't need to. Know who I am. Know who I belong to. I know my destiny. I know my identity. Being an American is not all there is to life. And you might say, I agree with that. And good, we're on the same page. Being married is not all there is to life. Having children, having friends, having money, enjoying the pleasures of sex or eating great food in public, it's not all there is to life. As Paul says, to live is Christ, which means to suffer, to carry a cross. To die is gain, because then you're in the perfect presence of heaven. So this is about a reunion. To live is to cling to the hope of the great love that our Father has for us in the cross of Christ. Die is to walk into the sweet presence of everlasting love in heaven. So knowing this, can I just ask you this last question? What do you actually have to fear? I'll pray. Father, as we close, trust that your spirit is more than capable, more than able to apply this message in your word to our hearts. <coughs> Father, pray in these moments that you come and minister to us as we sing, as we spend time just prayerfully consider, considering what I've preached, what your word says. I ask God that you would remove what was not of you and that you would actually take the things that you wanted to say and that you would make them like a laser beam. That you would make them like a heavy burden on our hearts. That you would take the things that we need to hear that by the power of your spirit as we trust you in faith that you would help us to hear you you would use your word to cause change and repentance. Lord, that you would give us a kind of a confidence that is authentic based on your work at the cross and the empty tomb as we cling to the hope of heaven. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.